0: Our passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. We are continuing in this series on the Gospel of Luke. I was sort of working out the preaching schedule for the rest of the book. I'll probably uh, skip over a few portions of chapter 20 in particular. Uh, The next portion you'll see, verse 27, the Sadducees ask about the resurrection of the body. That is a passage that I preached on from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in May of 2020. So I may hop over that portion. It's very similar to what Mark has. And so if I hop over that portion with Easter and vacation and things like that, it looks like we'll finish the Gospel of Luke, Lord willing, early September. uh, And then we will uh, look at another book of the Bible. And for today, our passage is from Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. A very well-known passage uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. As I say often, I encourage you to turn to it in your Bibles and leave your Bibles open as I preach so that you can be wise like the Bereans and test everything you hear against the Word of God. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him in that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and said to them, Show me a denarius." Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is indeed the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now in our passage this morning, as Luke continues in his narrative of the final week of Christ's earthly ministry, the week which leads up to his crucifixion and death, uh, we see that in the timeline of Luke's Gospel, there's really no gap between our passage this morning and where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at the parable of the wicked tenants, and we included verse 19 in that passage which uh, verse 19 declares to us that the religious leaders of Israel were ready to seize Jesus that very hour because He offended them deeply by telling them that parable of the wicked tenants. But because they feared the crowds, they backed off and uh, were not ready to make their move. Now our text this morning opens up again, building off of verse 19. And here in verse 20 we see the these religious leaders of Israel kind of regroup a little bit, and they work up another scheme in an attempt to entrap Jesus. And what is their plan exactly this morning in our text? Their plan is to send spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might ensnare Jesus in something He said, be able to hand Him over to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor of Rome. In other words, The religious leaders of Israel were hoping Jesus would say something in our text today which could be perceived as rebellious by the Roman Empire. They were hoping to make Jesus look like an insurrectionist. That's what they were going for this morning. And so these spies, they go to watch and to ask Jesus a question, which I think in their minds, they thought surely this will... Uh, ensnare Jesus one way or another. Now, before we look at the question that these spies asked Jesus, we need to understand who exactly these spies were. And to get that information, we have to go to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Mark's account of the same event. He tells us that this group of spies were made up of two groups of, of various Jews. The Pharisees and the Herodians. It's quite interesting the makeup of this group of spies, beloved, because the Pharisees and the Herodians were not allies in any sense of the word. They they were not friends. In fact, they were probably enemies. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of their day. Uh, They hated the Roman occupation of Israel. They believed Israel should be a free and independent nation and rule over all other nations on earth. They believed Rome had no claim over them. They viewed the Roman Empire as their political and religious oppressor. The Herodians, on the other hand, were Jews who were, in a sense, in bed with the Roman Empire. They were very willing to work for and work with Rome. They were, in a sense, you could say they were willing to sell out their own nation for the sake of political gain and power. And so the Pharisees, the Herodians... They were not on speaking terms with one another, but we know, uh, not only from our text today, but from the course of world history, that if one thing can unite two enemies, it is usually a greater common enemy. And for these two groups of Jews, the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus Christ was that common enemy. For the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat to their religious structure and their status in that structure among other men. For the Herodians, Jesus was a threat to their political aspirations. Both groups were threatened by and both groups hated Jesus Christ. And so they were able to come together at least momentarily to deal with this threat of Christ. So these spies, they, they, they go to Jesus and as I said before, they ask Him a question which was probably drummed up. You know, this was probably a, a pre-planned uh, question. Maybe that, this was like the, what they thought was their golden ticket. They were kind of keeping in their back pocket sort of their nuclear option if nothing else was working. They pull this card out. They go. They ask Him this question, which they thought surely would entrap Jesus. Now, one more delay before we actually look at this question. I know I keep putting this question off, the question that the spies asked Jesus, but um, I want us to notice before they ask Christ this question, I want us to notice what they do to Jesus. They come to him, despite the fact that he was their enemy in their minds, they come to him and attempt to butter him up. They begin to brown nose Jesus a little bit. They start to patronize him. They flatter him. That's really what it is. is—is flattery. This is their attempt. Let's go to him and let's flatter him. Make him think we're with him. And then ask him this question. Look at verse 21. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, what were they saying to Jesus in their flattery? They were saying the truth. They were saying to Jesus, we know, Rabbi, that your teachings are orthodox. And I mean that not in the sense of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but I mean that in the sense of the word orthodox meaning upright. Upright doctrine. We know your teachings are good and right. They are right and true things that you proclaim. We know, Rabbi, that you do not show favoritism with anyone because of their status in society. We've seen you teach... Uh, We've seen you treat tax collectors with as much kindness as you treated a Roman centurion. And that too is good, because we know the law of God forbids partiality. And we know, Rabbi, we know, Teacher, that you teach the way of God. Meaning, we know, Jesus, that you teach the right way to have eternal salvation. As I said, everything these spies say to Jesus is absolutely, 100% true. Jesus did teach true, upright doctrine. He taught orthodox theology. He never misinterpreted the text of the Old Testament. He never misapplied it. He never took it out of its context. He never uttered a single word that was untrue. A single word that even came close to heresy. Likewise, He did not show partiality. We've seen that time and time again throughout Luke's Gospel. He was never swayed to treat a person better than someone else because of their societal status. His approval or his disapproval of someone always came down to the condition of their hearts, their motives, their words, their actions. And indeed, Jesus truly taught the one way of salvation, the way of God. When he proclaimed that in order to be saved, and in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you must repent of your sin and receive Him by faith. That was, and it is to this day, the way of God, the way of salvation. So everything these spies say, absolutely true. The problem, of course, is that they didn't really believe it. They didn't really believe Jesus taught correctly. They didn't believe Jesus showed no partiality. In fact, they accuse Him of showing favoritism often to the people that they themselves scorned and hated. How many times do they scoff at Jesus and say, look at a meeting with sinners, tax collectors. They thought He was partial towards wicked people. And they certainly rejected the Gospel that Jesus proclaimed. So these words were nothing more than, as I said before, empty flattery. And as we see in verse 23 of the text, Jesus is fully aware of that fact. Now, how was He aware of the fact that they were merely flattering Him? Some people might say, well, the Holy Spirit, who was Christ's continual helper in His earthly ministry, must have revealed this to Him. I don't necessarily think it takes a work of divine insight for Jesus to see that these men were flattering him i can tell you and maybe this is a warning to anyone who thinks they can use flattery as a weapon i can tell you many times it is very easy to know when someone is simply flattering you beloved people are not that good overall at blowing smoke generally if someone's using flattery if they're brown nosing if they're patronizing it's pretty obvious The person doing it might think they're being crafty, but the person who is being flattered many times can see right through it, and Jesus could see right through it. He knew these people weren't being sincere at all. He was on to them. But this was the direction that these spies decided to take, and having now attempted to flatter Jesus, they ask Him the question that we have been uh, talking about this whole time. The question is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. In other words, teacher, should we pay our taxes to Rome? Does the law of God allow this? Does the law of God even allow Caesar in the first place to inflict taxes on us? What does God say? Do you see the trap in this? It is somewhat clever of them. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes what will his Jewish audience think? Well, he's telling us to pay tribute. Pay taxes to Caesar. How can he be the Messiah, Israel's king, the one who is supposed to set Israel free? How can he be the Messiah and tell us to pay tribute to the man who is occupying us? Jesus would immediately lose all credibility with the crowd in that moment if he said, yes, pay your taxes and it would allow the religious leaders of Israel to seize him. On the other hand, if if Jesus says, no, God's law does not allow us to pay taxes to Caesar, and you shouldn't do it, those will be understood by the Roman Empire as the words of an insurrectionist. They would immediately arrest him and put him to death. One commentator said that Rome was very tolerant to a point Very tolerant of various religious practices, but the one thing the Roman Empire was not tolerant of was political disobedience. They had zero tolerance for any hint at rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so now we see the trap Jesus is in. And now that we understand that trap, hopefully we can understand the brilliance of his response. He says, Show me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin which had to be used to pay this particular tax, this tribute to Caesar. This is the coin that had to be used to pay this tax that they are talking about here. He says, show me a denarius. And then he says, whose image is on it? Whose inscription is on it? The denarius was stamped with the likeness of Caesar. And it had various phrases on it as well. Declaring Caesar to be divine. Declaring his father to be divine. Declaring the fact that he was Lord. And even some phrases which indicated that Caesar was a savior. And so taking the coin, Jesus asks them whose likeness, whose inscription is on this coin. They say, of course, it's Caesar's. And so Jesus replies, render, that is give, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. It's an absolutely brilliant response, beloved. And as Luke tells us in verse 26, the spies had no idea how to even reply, so they remained silent. Even they marveled at the brilliance of this response. Now we need to understand a few things about this response to understand how brilliant it is. First, Jesus is not saying that all money belongs to Caesar. Just because the denarius had his image on it, Jesus was not declaring that Caesar had a claim on all their money. But, And and Jesus doesn't go into the theological reasons for this, but he is saying that if Caesar demands a certain portion of their money as a tribute, as a tax, pay it. To put it in modern terms, he was basically saying shut up and pay your taxes. Thus no one from Rome could accuse him of political treason. But understand also, in saying this, Jesus was not affirming the inscription that was found on the coin. Jesus was not affirming the idea that Caesar is divine, that he is Lord, that he is a Savior. Jesus telling the Jews to pay their taxes is in no way a condoning of the inscription of Caesar. And therefore, the religious Jews, because they hear Christ's response and the way that He responds, therefore the religious Jews could not accuse Him of blasphemy or even treason against Israel. He simply says, listen, it's got Caesar's head on it, give it to Caesar. Render unto Caesar the things that are His. The whole point here is that Jesus would not say anything which could be interpreted by his hearers as being disloyal to either the nation of Israel or to the Roman Empire. That's why his answer was so good. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. He shows us, really, he shows us, beloved, even today, how to properly honor both Caesar, in our context, the civil government, and ultimately how to honor God Himself. And so he gets out of this trap, and again, the people who come to shame Christ, and we've seen this over the last several weeks, the people who come to shame Christ publicly, don't they always end up shaming themselves? They think they're going to put Christ in a corner, outwit Him, be more clever than Him. He's the Son of God in flesh. What happens? They're the ones who have to shrink away in shame and disgrace. Jesus, in his answer, as I said before, he teaches us even today how to honor Caesar and, above all else, honor God. And Christ's response, as I was thinking about this text, it really has some amazing implications for us as modern readers of Luke's Gospel. The implications just weren't for the hearers of this exchange 2,000 years ago. But today, it leads us as Christians, as the people of God, to ask some questions about how this applies to our own lives. Really, this Christ response raises two obvious questions. The first one being, how do we today, as citizens of both the Kingdom of God and citizens of the United States of America, how do we today render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. How do we give to our government what belongs to them? And then, of course, the second question is naturally, how do we render unto God what is God's? So how do we today, as citizens of the United States of America, render unto Caesar? How do we give to our government what is theirs today? The only thing that we really gain from this particular passage is that we are to pay our taxes. Now, I do want us to understand, when I remark that Jesus' response was basically a shut-up-and-pay-your-taxes response, understand, He was not forbidding us from advocating for certain politicians or certain policies which might alleviate the burden of the state that is put on citizens. We have this privilege in this nation to be involved with the political process, to vote for representatives who we believe will... Uh, you know, supposedly fight for us and defend us. And uh, it is not a sin for us to advocate for policies or politicians who might ease the tax burden on, uh, on the people. We can do that in this country without dishonoring Caesar. So Jesus wasn't saying, just take it on the chin. There's a right and honorable way for us to pursue a change in any political policy. But I think Jesus' answer of render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it goes well beyond just paying taxes. The authors of the New Testament expand, I think, on this idea of what it means to render to Caesar. The Apostle Peter, he has some insight for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 17, he says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, meaning your saints, your fellow saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. That is a hard command for many of us, beloved. And maybe we'll make excuses today. Like, well, Peter wrote that in a different context than ours. Our civil leaders are so dishonorable today. Did Peter really mean to tell us to honor our emperor, so to speak? Beloved, I don't think we want to even begin to compare our modern politicians, regardless of how vile their Twitter feed may be, we do not want to begin to compare our modern politicians with the emperors of Rome during the times of the apostles. I don't know any president who is taking Christians and impaling them on stakes, lighting them on fire, Sticking them in his garden and then inviting dinner guests over and using the burning bodies of impaled Christians as lanterns for his dinner guests. It's what the emperor of Rome did in the days of Peter. We really cannot compare the, the nature of our political leaders today with the one that was over Peter when he said, honor the emperor. And so that's the first thing we learn. How do we render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar? How do we render to our government today that which belongs to our government officials? We honor them. We show them respect. Well, the Apostle Paul, he adds some things, some helpful things uh, for us as well to learn what it means to render under Caesar. Uh, many of you know probably the words of Romans 13, which calls us to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, Paul gives us all these reasons why in Romans 13 we're to do that. We're not going to look at that this morning, but we want to see the call he gives us. Respect, or I'm sorry, subject ourselves to the governing authorities. In other words, Paul tells us to obey the government. Obey our mayors, our governors, our presidents. We are called to be lawful citizens. This too is part of what it means to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We are to honor them. We are to obey them. And of course, I do want to recognize, beloved, our obedience to civil authority does have limits. And in fact, there are three scenarios which I think we must not obey the civil government. And I'll give them to you briefly, realizing, of course, that apart from these scenarios, we must obey the government. The first is when obeying the government's law comes at the expense of breaking God's law. Beloved, God's law always takes priority above the laws of men. And if we are in a position where we must choose to obey either the word of God or the law of the land, we must choose the word of God. Even if it means the civil government punishes us. We must be willing to take that punishment. You see the apostles doing that, by the way, in the book of Acts. There's one point where Paul's about to be flogged and beaten to death. And he says, you know what? Tell me what the offense is that I committed. And if I did commit a capital offense, I submit myself to this punishment. We must obey God's law above the law of men. And as Christians, be willing to accept the consequences of that. The second exception to obeying civil government is that we must not obey when we are asked to do or condone an immoral act. Now this might seem similar to the first ex- exception for disobedience, but I think maybe it goes a little bit further. Kent Hughes, in his commentary in this passage, says that the sexual significance of disobeying when asked to commit or condone an immoral act is obvious and easy to understand. Just think about that for a moment, Beloved. Think about how that applies to how Christians think and speak about things which the government may declare to be right and moral and normal, but are in fact immoral according to the Scriptures. Think about how we speak and think about marriage, biology, sexual identity, and so on. We have to understand just because the government declares something to be legal and moral does not mean that in the sight of God, it is indeed moral and ethical. We have to resist the government when it asks us to recognize something as good and virtuous when God's word says it is not. That's the second exception to obedience to Caesar. Thirdly, our obedience to Caesar concerns matter of the conscience. The Christian must never go against the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our consciences to obey the civil magistrate. In fact, this is one of the what we call the preliminary principles of Presbyterianism. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now, I want to be careful with this one. Because one thing I saw consistently from some Christians throughout the pandemic, for example, was a conflating of their opinions and their political positions with their Christian conscience. It was gross. It was disgusting. I saw men, men who claimed to be able to rightly handle the Word of God, pervert the Bible to provide support for why they couldn't obey things like mask mandates. Why they couldn't wear a mask in a restaurant or in a grocery store. Listen, we all have to be very cautious to not conflate our opinions and political positions with biblical conviction. The way we guard against doing that is by immersing ourselves in the Scriptures so that our consciences are taken captive by the Word of God. That is the only way to make sure we aren't letting our opinions and our desires be conflated with true matters of Christian conscience. No one liked masks. Hated them. And I didn't like mask mandates either. Well, let's be honest. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. And a lot of people conflated what they liked and didn't like with the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. We have to be careful not to do that. Apart from those three examples, I can think of no other exception to our obligation to render unto Caesar obedience. So how do we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? How do we give to our government today what is his? We honor our political leaders, our politicians. We obey them. Thirdly, also from the Apostle Paul, we render unto them what is theirs by praying for them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers... Intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Do you want to truly honor? Do you want to render unto Caesar what is his? Do you want to truly honor those in authority over you, beloved? Pray for them. Pray for them. That may be the most honoring and, quite frankly, the most patriotic thing that any christian could ever do pray for our leaders they need they need prayer beloved we are called we are a priestly people do you realize what that means that means we can go before the lord on behalf of our politicians and offer up prayer and supplication for them that is how we honor them that is how we love them we render unto them what is theirs by going before god and praying on their behalf. So how do we render unto God the things that are, that uh, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar? We honor them, we obey them, we pray for them. That leads us into the second question, how do we render unto God the things that are gods? And here beloved, it should not be lost on us that Jesus speaks of an image to reflect ownership. The coin was Caesar's coin because it bore Caesar's image on it. So, what does that say about you and I? It goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The human race, beloved, bears the image of God. That does not mean we look like God. As we've been hearing in our Sunday evening service, God is spirit. He does not have a body like men. But it does mean we are created in His likeness. We are created with knowledge, righteousness, with holiness. We were given dominion over the creation. We alone did God breathe into the breath of life. And although the image of God in us is severely perverted and twisted today because of our sin and our rebellion against the government of God Himself, that image is still there. It is not completely lost. All people, whether you are a Christian or not, all people are created in the image of God. And that means God owns us. Therefore, we are to render unto God the things that are God, we must render unto Him our total life. It is not ours, it is His. His mark of ownership is impressed upon us. We are to render unto Him our worship, our adoration, our praise. We are to render unto Him our very bodies, our souls, our hearts, our minds. We are to render unto Him our total obedience. We are to render unto Him our families, our time, our money, whatever it is, it belongs to Him. He has a claim on it all because He has a claim on us as our Creator. We are made in His image. He owns us. His image is stamped upon us. And that means we owe Him nothing less than our entire selves. That is how we render unto God the things that are God and understand the only way that this is even possible is by rendering unto Jesus Christ our faith. Faith in who He is as God incarnate, as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. Faith in who He is as the eternally begotten Son of God. Faith in what He has done for us as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who died for our sins, who took on to Himself as our substitute the punishment we deserve, and faith in who He is as the One who conquered death and hell and sin and the devil by rising again three days later. If we are to render unto God what is truly His, we must render unto Jesus Christ our, our total and complete faith and devotion and obedience. Beloved, I need us to understand something. It is not an accident that Jesus asked for a coin in this moment and asked whose image is on it. Whose likeness does it bear? It was not an accident at all. This very uh, symbolism of an image struck onto a coin. It's It's the symbolism that the author of Hebrews would later use to describe Jesus Christ Himself. Hebrews 1, verse 3. The verse says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And in the original Greek of the New Testament, that word imprint literally refers to an image stamped on a coin. If you were an imprinter... In the Roman Empire, if you were an imprinter, in Greek, it means you are one who mints coins. You see, you and I and everyone who has ever lived and whoever, uh, who will ever live, we may bear the image of God. We may be created in His image, but Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God One in the very same nature as God. He is the very image of the invisible God. He is God Himself. And so in a sense, it's as if Jesus is saying here to us, don't miss this. Caesar can have the coin. It was imprinted with His image. Let Him have it. But what you owe Me is something far greater. Because I am not a created Thing which bears a resemblance to something else. I am the exact imprint of the very essence, the very being, the very nature of God Himself. So you owe me everything. And beloved, I think it proves, it shows us all the more that if we are to render unto God the things that are God's, then we must render ourselves in full to our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. All glory, submission, obedience, worship belongs to Him. And apart from Him, it is impossible to render unto God the things that belong to God.